Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermajit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Adric Riedel, and I'm here with Paige Godfrey, who is a graduate student, a yes. PhD student. And we are actually sitting in an office in the American Museum of Natural History, New York City, which is very interesting. I mean, these guys are here all the time, so they're not too phased by it, but for me, this is pretty exciting. But thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate your time. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm. So let's just jump right into what you are interested in researching. Um, I guess when I asked uh, Paige for a short description, you mentioned near-Earth systems, objects, or low mass? Low mass. Low mass. You're low mass and you're <laughs> near Earth. Yeah, and for the most part, they overlap because... Yeah. Right. Okay. So what, what would... Right. So, and how would we define near Earth? And how would we define low mass? Because near, we're talking about astronomical, you know, celestial entities. Near is not, you know, from one side of Manhattan to the other. It's <laughs> a bit further than that. So how would you describe or define near? So when people define the solar neighborhood, um, which is where we find most of the brown dwarfs and the things that both of us study, they're either talking about a region that's roughly 100 parsecs in size, which is about 320 light years, mm -hmm. Um, that sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, except that the galaxy itself is more like 50,000 parsecs across. So, Really? Yeah. The galaxy is enormous. We're looking <laughs> at just the tiny portion that's closest to us. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you define near. And, it within, and within that, and it's not, it wouldn't be in a particular direction, right? No. It's all around us. All around. And... Okay, that's pretty far. <laughs> yeah. How would we define low mass? So we study brown dwarfs, which are substellar objects, and the low mass, there's two kind of different mass definitions. The a brown, brown dwarfs are defined by their mass, which is less massive than stars and not massive enough to fuse hydrogen in their core. And so that defines a brown dwarf, but low mass, and those are low mass objects, low mass stellar objects. Um, but I also study the cooler brown dwarfs, which are T-dwarfs, and um, those can even be sometimes less massive than if you're talking about an M-dwarf, which is hotter, more massive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, the stars go in, we, we organize them by temperature, and the organization goes O for the hottest ones, B, A, F, G, that's the sun, K, then M. And those are Somewhere in ML, we're not actually sure, these objects stop being stars. They stop fusing hydrogen in their cores because they're just, they're incredibly massive. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about stuff that's way larger than even the planet Jupiter. But they're just not massive enough to fuse hydrogen, so they're not technically stars. Got it. And you, you mentioned a term substellar, and that was just referring to the mass when you said substellar? When you're talking about the... Correct. Yeah, it's referring it's referring to the process processes that occur in in the chemistry in in the object. So mm -hmm. the nuclear fusion in the core or um, the lack of, which is defined by the mass of the object. Yeah. Basically. 
So brown dwarfs, as you mentioned, they um, weren't always brown dwarfs, right? They became brown dwarfs once they lost the ability to fuse hydrogen in their core? No, they actually formed that way. They formed that yeah. way? Okay. okay so I'll... they form from a smaller gas cloud than a star would. Got it. Okay. Which is where there's less mass from. Ah, okay, okay. And the cool thing is that if you consider particularly the very small ones that Page studies, uh, you're talking about objects that resemble the extrasolar planets that people are finding. So you, you want mm -hmm. to talk about life on other planets, you want to talk about other star systems. If you want to study these other star systems, we're, we're basically... Brown dwarfs are kind of... We're using them as templates. Mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to transfer what we can see with the brown dwarfs. They're just floating on their own but they're an awful lot like the planets that are orbiting other stars. And we're finding ones, um, some of the work I'm doing now is, it's an exoplanet imager, and it finds, it's looking for exoplanets around a host star, but sometimes they find a brown dwarf or a T-dwarf. Right. And so then I study those. Um, but brown dwarfs are basically like a bridge between stars and planets. And so we knew we had stars, and we knew we had planets, and all of a sudden they found brown dwarfs, and it turns out that some of them are, like, the M and L's could be stars or could be brown dwarfs. The mass uh, division mm -hmm. isn't super cut clear. And then lower, cooler uh, brown dwarfs, the T's, and the Y dwarfs, the Y dwarfs are the coolest brown dwarfs that we know of, uh, resemble planets. And so being a brown dwarfs, though, are brighter than planets, so being able to study them helps us understand exoplanets. So, uh, so you mentioned exoplanets, mm -hmm. and just a Defines a lot of definitions going on around here. <laughs> yeah. Astronomy, yeah. physics. Uh, so an exoplanet is what? It's just a planet that doesn't orbit the sun. Our sun, right? So any any planet yeah. that is part of another star system and not our star system. Yes, correct. And you mentioned um, when we look for exoplanets, sometimes we might end up finding a brown dwarf. So what what tools specifically do you use when you're looking for exoplanets? Uh, is it just a telescope, or are, is there something else to it? We we use a telescope, but the methods are different. So mm -hmm. um, when we see, especially like a star, they're really bright, and we get really good spectra of these objects, which is just the amount of flux that's coming in at the wavelengths, uh, that the whole wavelength range that we can see. And if it's a really bright object, we have a big wavelength range for the fainter objects, sometimes it's a narrower wavelength range. Um, but then for planets, they use different methods, like the transiting method. So if there's a host star, and we think there might be a planet around it, mm -hmm. they take the spectra of the star, and in theory, which I mean, but also proven, um, as the planet goes around the star, and you see it going in front of the star between the, us, the telescope, and the star, the flux will dip you'll get less light because now you have a planet covering a portion of the star. Right. And so that dip in intensity in the flux, that's the transiting method, and we can determine that there's... And so um, we can also determine the orbit of the exoplanet based on how long we take the, the spectra, how many times it comes around, how often we see the dip. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... The thing with studying exoplanets is you have something that's very, very dim next to something very, very bright. The usual analogy people give is like a, a firefly next to a stadium light, and you want to mm. see the firefly. Mm. And the way that we're getting around that is that we're seeing 
some other little fireflies off on their own, basically. And we're looking at what they are and then using data from telescopes, you know, what little we can get. I mean, Project 1640 is one of the first of its kind. Um, what little information we can get about what this planet possibly is and just assuming, you know, trying to figure out what they are based on what we know of the other brown dwarf objects. And what's Project 1640? It's an instrument that's actually built by people at the museum that is meant to look for, it's meant to actually get spectroscopic signatures of exoplanets to actually be able to see their chemical compositions. I mean, it's not quite that good yet, but mm -hmm. that's and the, the goal. The way they can do that is when they know that there's an exoplanet around a host star, they can block out the light from the star. So it's basically like putting a shade in front of the star's light, which then allows us to be able to see the planet. And then we can get a spectrum from the planet. Or it's really low resolution because it's such a faint object. But that's why finding brown dwarfs in where we would expect an exoplanet to be is super interesting because they're brighter. Mm -hmm. So we, we can get information about this, the system and predict what an exoplanet system composition-wise might have, yeah. since it's hard to see. And maybe you should explain what spectra is. It's basically you take, you take the light, you put it through a prism, or in our case, gratings and complicated instruments, and there's patterns of dark lines superimposed on the rainbow that tell us, basically it's a fingerprint, because every single chemical element and molecule has their own set of lines. So we can tell what things are made of, you know, dozens of parsecs away, thousands of light years away, in other galaxies even sometimes. Right. So and that's, that seems like a very powerful tool. I, when we hear uh, scientists telling the media or you read about it saying, oh, we know, you know, so-and-so star uh, seems to have so-and-so percent hydrogen and so-and-so percent helium, so, you know, there's only this much hydrogen left, so this is how we can predict that life is. Does that sound about right? Is that one way to predict uh, the life of a star? But what the point I'm getting at is yeah. that, is that so, you know, this is the way that they, they determine these numbers or determine what type, uh, what different elements are in faraway objects is using these uh, spectral analyses. Yes. Yeah. So I actually have a question about um, the method that you mentioned where you would uh, see a dip in the intensity mm -hmm. of light. How do you know that the, the brighter object is not, uh, I guess, like pulsating? It, it, is, isn't there something uh, that, that's a, a pulsar? What a is pulsar. a pulsar? Yes. A pulsar is the result of a supernova. So. Oh, okay. Or a result of a supernova. Mm -hmm. So you have a star um, that dies and it explodes. And after it explodes, you're left with a hot, dense core, and it spins. It, it can. It can. So one of the one of the results you could get is a spinning core, and that's called a neutron star. Mm -hmm. And if it so happens that it's spinning where we can see this pulsing light, we call it a pulsar. Yeah. So a pulsar is a neutron star. It just so happens to be conveniently facing Earth. Uh, um, yeah. But that is the aftermath of a supernova explosion. So yeah. we can, I mean, there's, using the spectral analysis, there's different signatures in there. I mean, different chemical compositions. Um, yeah. It will look different in a telescope. Yeah, it, uh, 
we probably knew about the explosion too. There are pulsating stars, um, Cepheids. There's a class called Cepheids, there's a class called Delta Scuti stars, there's a class called uh, Myra variables, and they do generally pulse. They become larger and they shrink. Mm. Um, it's, there's a lot of complicated physics behind it that I frankly don't completely understand, but um, yeah, it does happen, and it even happens on really small scales to stars like the sun uh, when you really, really care about precise accuracy, when you're really, really trying to get it right. Mm. Um, so yeah, they do look for those things, and actually a lot of the accidental science revealed by missions like Kepler has done a lot for our, our knowledge of pulsating stars. They do find them. To back to your question, it's a different, uh, so in a transiting method, as the planet goes in front of the star, you'll get a dip in intensity. Mm -hmm. If it were a pulsar, you'd get a peak in intensity because you're getting light, more light versus less light. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. But doesn't that also depend on where, when you start? Well, it's um, a, a shorter time frame. So mm -hmm. it's... You're, you have this constant, for a pulsar, you have a constant light source, and mm. as it spins for just that, they spin really quickly, so they can spin in, um, I think, what's the shortest? Two, a couple There's a, milliseconds, millisecond pulsars, yeah. right? So okay. it would be for, like, a millisecond, you'd get a peak of light versus um, a planet would take, you know, maybe hours to orbit the front of the star, and you'd get yeah. that dip. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the differentiation, got it. Yeah. yeah. So this is, yeah, brown dwarfs are basically a stage of basically we're trying to understand right now things larger than Jupiter or roughly mm -hmm. the same size as Jupiter. We're assuming big gas planets. We're not currently able to study rocky planets around other stars, mm -hmm. which... You know, that's good for us because I don't think brown dwarf stuff would translate very well to trying to right, so get the keeps, earth around the sun. This keeps our careers in check. But exactly, yeah. <laughs> in so. terms of finding life, I mean, you're looking for a rocky planet. But mm -hmm. yeah. finding rocky planets starts with understanding hot Jupiters. Yeah, and it Because could we be, have our own Jupiter. Yeah, it, it could be that we will find a habitable moon before we'll find a habitable planet. That's right. uh, That was just a new... Mm -hmm. Article I just read. Are you talking about um, in our solar system or any any solar system? Well, honestly, any, any both. nearby solar system. Because um, I know there's a lot of attention paid to Jupiter's moons and Saturn's moons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that same logic could apply to moons around other solar systems. Right now, the only evidence we have of I mean, we know that they ought to exist because if planets exist, moons should exist, and so on. The only direct evidence we have is that. Uh, someone spotted an enormous ring system passing in front of a star. They actually saw a whole bunch of dips as this big... You know, the ring system's way, way larger than Saturn's. Mm -hmm. So we figure that there had to be moons in the gaps. Couldn't see the moons. But, but yeah. so, so you have to make an inference, right? And, yeah, and, and a lot of it is, and then you have to, I guess, gather more data to yeah. kind of back it up. Which I guess is pretty much all of science. But. Yeah, and the field is going to look very different. You, you talk to astronomers you know, five years from now, and things may be very, very different. Mm. The difference in our field is that our lab is up in space. 
hundreds of parsecs away. Right. Other mm. sciences have their labs right here, you know, on the table. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of astronomy is inference and theory. Yeah, we can't exactly do a control experiment. <laughs> you can't do anything to a star. Our best control experiment is our own solar system. <laughs> yeah, so that makes sense. That's why yeah. there's so much emphasis on the moons in our own solar system. Mm. It's, yeah. the, it's the best we have. And in terms of uh, the moons um, in, our, in our solar system, which ones, which one or ones are you guys uh, most excited about? Well, I mean, this is all basically more or less as... I deal with stars, so this I'm not really much more aware of what's going on than you would be yeah. for the moons, but I'm most interested in Enceladus, mm. um, the moon of Saturn. It's got an undersea ocean, and that ocean is actually being... It's volcanoes. It's being shot out into space, so wow. if there's critters living in there, maybe we could fly a space probe through a jet and see them. Uh, there's also Europa, mm. which it probably has an ocean larger than all of the Earth's oceans put together under the surface. It's being squeezed by Jupiter such that there's probably massive undersea volcanoes down there. And you could put an ecosystem there. I have no idea what it would look like, and probably any biologist listening to this would be <laughs> raising a million caveats right now. But we've, I mean, NASA has just announced a mission to Europa specifically to look at the moon uh, right. so that's a big deal can we talk about some the you mentioned that Jupiter has a, uh, an effect on Europa right yeah. uh, because Jupiter huge planet you know huge mass has a ton of gravi uh, gravitational pull and Europa even though you wouldn't expect there to be I don't know, I guess liquid so far away from the sun, but it's it's due to Jupiter's gravitational stress that it puts on Europa that's, like you said, it's warping it a little bit, It's, put, and that's, I guess, leading to warm yeah. internal temperatures. I don't, I don't know what a better way to phrase it is. It's tides. Mm -hmm. Like, the moon raises tides on the Earth. The Earth also would raise tides on the moon, except that the moon is a big, solid chunk. Um... Basically, I think the uh, simplest way to explain tides is that one side of the Earth, the water on one side of the Earth is much closer to the moon, so it gets pulled more than the Earth is pulled a little bit, and on the other side, the water on the other side isn't, so you end up with what appears to be... Ah, uh, okay, I see. You know, the water is being pulled towards the moon, and that kind of stress on a solid object will make it heat up. And that kind of stress on a solid object is what keeps Io the closest major moon of Jupiter volcanic mm -hmm. and is probably powering, well, it's probably making the ocean liquid underneath the surface of Europa. Okay, yeah. So that's what I was wondering. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's tides. Got it. Let's jump back to brown dwarfs. Yes. Why are they called brown <laughs> dwarfs? Dwarfs, I guess we you know we talked about the size. They're smaller than most stars, and you know bigger than planets, but smaller than most stars. But why brown? Back when they were first proposed, they didn't know what color they were, and there was already red dwarfs, white dwarfs, and black dwarfs. I think, correct? Uh, yeah. I think there were black dwarfs already, and 
I mean, oh my god. So many colors do you have? Yeah. Um, but they, I think they were looking for a darker color because they're faint. Yeah, and black that's was why, already taken, right, so brown. brown was the next dimmest. Because um, they were proposed in theory before they were found. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they knew they were faint. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the cool things about working in this field. I think the guy who first theoretically proposed their existence is still alive. Mm. Not sure about that, but mm. I know that the but woman who long. named them uh, it still is. Right. That's true. I mean, it's. I mean, and a, and a recent, I guess, sort of famous example is uh, uh, Peter Higgs, right? He proposed the Higgs boson. Uh, I know this is particle physics kind of right. veering away here, but I mean, in uh, it's still science, and he proposed it, and he was he's around to to kind of witness the dis the yeah. discovery or the detection of it. That's yeah. That I see. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and yeah. brown dwarfs, all like all the major players in the early days are still here and still publishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're basically, they're called brown because of what Paige said. Because that's the color that was left. <laughs> but they're actually, like, purple. Yeah. What do you that, mean, actually? Well, they're, like, they're not actually brown. Mm. So if you, if you were able to <laughs> actually fly to one... Yeah. and see it with the naked eye, it would be purple. Yeah, if I'm in my spaceship and I'm hovering over one, it's probably either going to be a very, very dark red, or a very, okay. very pure, deep red, mm. or it's going to be kind of a purple, because it's methane. Ah, okay. there's, there's methane, and especially the T-dwarf, the, the smaller ones. Right. And there's probably a color variation within the different types of brown dwarfs, too, right? Oh, yeah. So, so I guess we shouldn't always be so, uh, I guess... Uh, you know, stuck to what the label of something is, right, in, in, in physics? Because, uh, like, I'm sure red dwarfs can vary in color, brown dwarfs can all the different yeah, dwarfs. Yeah, there's a continuity of temperatures. It's not like there's suddenly this enormous cutoff, and then mm. there's... Right. And now they're spectrum, orange, yeah. and now they're red. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's a... Yeah. yeah. But it helps to stick with one name. I mean, by the mm. time brown dwarfs were found and they were not brown, you're not going to go back and change all the publications. <laughs> like, it sounds silly, right, but, like, right. yeah. you're not yeah. just... I mean, the study always progresses, and we mm. find out more information about these things, but you can't go back and change what they're yeah. called. Right. Well, I mean, astronomers yeah. still refer to stars as being early type and late type, which the hotter ones are early, the older ones are late. And that's because of this thoroughly discredited and antiquated idea that stars would start out at a particular temperature and then gradually cool. So the early ones would be bright, or, you know, hot, blue, bright, and the late ones would be, you know, red, cold, dim. Mm -hmm. That's not true. It's not. But we still use the term because uh. we've been using it for like a hundred years now. So, so what is, what, is there a theory that replaced that explanation of... Uh. Oh, yeah. Uh, basically, stars, the temperature of a star is directly related to the amount of mass inside it. Any star that has, like, one solar mass of material in it uh, that's still fusing hydrogen is going to look basically exactly like the sun. And something that's half the mass of the sun is going to be, like, ten times fainter and much redder. And they're just going to stay there until they run out of fuel because they're being powered 
and they're being heated by nuclear fusion, and that's basically constant for their lives. Mm -hmm. So the sun isn't getting any fainter or dimmer. Got it. So once they run out of fuel, that's kind of it. It's not that it's going to get gradually dimmer. Yeah. Okay. Ironically, brown dwarfs are one case where they will gradually get dimmer, but that doesn't exactly validate the theory. It's different. Yeah, it's different okay. physics. Uh, so what got, what got you guys interested in brown dwarfs? Why study brown dwarfs? I actually didn't. Um, I came to grad school and I met my advisor and I really liked her and the group um, and the work sounded cool. So. I just kind of rolled with it. Um, I didn't come here intending to study brown dwarfs. Okay. All right. I remember my senior year of high school trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I basically settled on that if they were going to pay me to study space, <laughs> I'd try studying space and see how far that took me. Um, but I wasn't, I arrived in this field because I wasn't interested in like intangible. Things I wanted something that I could, in theory, go out and look at. So I chose right. stars, mm -hmm. and I went to Villanova University that has a great program on binary stars, and they've been trying to track, like they've been trying to find analogs to the sun and analogs to smaller stars to chart to see how stars evolve in time. So I got stuck with stars, um, which I like. Well, stuck in a good way, right? Yeah, I, I, I stuck with stars because. In a way, you can, can they're real. You look up at them, those are places that you could go. Mm -hmm. I mean, technology and the time required is one thing, but it's kind of like you're on an island in the ocean, and if you swam far enough, it's a place, it's a thing. Mm -hmm. So I liked that. And I gradually moved to smaller and smaller objects because there's more interesting stuff to be done. I think we mentioned we don't even know what where the line between a star and a brown dwarf is. Mm -hmm. And that's a very exciting place to be. So when you said that you preferred something tangible rather than intangible, you're, so you're contrasting it with like the theoretical like, branch of physics? Theoretical. So rather than you know cosmology. being here in a, on a chalkboard all day? Yeah. Right? right? Yeah. yeah. And the fields are overlapping, mm -hmm. um, ever more so as the generations kind of mesh. I mean, I think back, I don't know how long ago, but there was definitely like two groups. You'd have the theoretical physicists and the observational, and they make fun of each other, and they <laughs> like their field is better. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, you theory and observations are in, uh, inter... I don't know what word I'm looking for. They're meshing more now. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and it's so very symbiotic. Yeah, yeah, you still have cosmology, which is very theoretical, and, and our field is very observational, but there's, they're meshing. Yeah. There's still a lot of work to be done to just figure out how the physics behind how these things exist, how they're formed, how they're made, what goes on inside them. Because, yeah, the theory that we have right now... The, the theories, the descriptions of how these stars, the low-mass stars, the brown dwarfs are, they don't match what we observe. Mm -hmm. And that keeps the theorists employed, and we keep finding <laughs> more things. We keep trying to come up with the data that they need to describe, you know, to, to help them fix those things so that we can understand just basic physics. 
So what you're trying to say is you're responsible for the jobs of theorists. And they're responsible for <laughs> ours. Right? Meshing, symbiotic, interconnected, yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 Um, how do brown dwarfs form? <laughs> um, well, so we think they form like stars in a molecular gas cloud. Uh, the gravity of the mass in the cloud will collapse it on itself and it will spin and keep collapsing until it forms an object like a star or a brown dwarf and presumably a brown dwarf is just a smaller gas cloud, less mass, smaller mm -hmm. object, but then the physics is different inside of the collapsed object. Um, but then there's also planets uh, we presume form in disks around stars or brown dwarfs. So there's when you get to the, the how we said the brown dwarfs are half stars, half planets, kind of in the middle. Uh, the formation theory is also kind of in the middle. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason why a brown dwarf couldn't form in a disk. Yeah, and mm -hmm. we think some of them have. And but you can't really go back and prove. We have not been able to prove that yet. Yeah, if you have a time machine, I'd be right. So that's a big field of study. That's actually part of why I've transitioned from brown dwarfs to brown dwarf exoplanet science, because that's what really interests me, okay. is the formation theories and how we can use brown dwarfs to understand exoplanets better. So that's where I'm is, taking is there, what you, So you're talking about the, the cloud uh, of different yeah. masses, and that ends up uh, forming a brown dwarf. Is there uh, like a critical mass that has to, for, is there like a minimum for a cloud uh, the amount of stuff that there has to be for something to happen, or because they're also just dust clouds, right? Uh, yeah, in space. yeah. That actually strikes right at what I've been working on for the last bit, in that it was thought that they all had to be, you know, all stars formed in these enormous clouds. However, there are several groups of young stars that are not in star forming regions. There are actually some that probably were never in a star-forming region, and they were just these tiny little clumps of gas that formed, rather than 10,000 stars, they maybe formed 200 mm -hmm. or 100. Um, the upshot being all the star-forming regions we know of are really far away, like the Orion Nebula, but these there's some of these little clumps. Apparently they're very common because some of these little clumps are right next door, and that's been... Kind of that was a recent discovery. That's only about mm. twenty, thirty years ago. So all those people are around too. <laughs> but um, there is ultimately supposed to be a smallest mass of gas that will collapse into a star, and that is about the limit. It should they should all produce stars. So we have we have to explain why smaller things collapse mm. because clearly they do because there are brown dwarfs. So is right next door another uh, technical term for distance? Uh, it's figurative. <laughs> I'm talking about... So some of these clouds, we're actually passing through some of these clouds. Like, oh, okay. um, the Big Dipper, most mm -hmm. of the stars in the Big Dipper are actually all related to each other. They're all the same age and they've actually all... They still retain the motion of the gas cloud they formed from. They're about 500 million years old, which sounds like a lot, but we're talking astronomy here, mm -hmm. where stars last for billions of years, not right. 500 million. Mm -hmm. And so there are some members of 
that same cloud that are actually completely on the other side of the sky, which means the sun is passing through this cloud at the mm -hmm. moment. So, yeah, they're close. Like, close for stars is 10 parsecs, 5 parsecs. That's fascinating. See, I, I always thought of maybe this is just a, a, an artifact of me being outside the field rather than inside the field, but I never thought that we could be in a cloud right now or passing through a cloud. I always imagined that, you know, nebula or, or clouds are just something that we see in the distance. Well, okay, the cloud is gone. All of the gas dissipated. All the gas was swallowed up in stars. Mm. So all that's left are the stars that were formed. Okay. The difference is that, you know, there's a star on this side of the sky and there's a star on the other side of the sky, as seen from us, or seen from here. Mm. So, yeah, the gas and is gone. All the gas is, like, 150 parsecs away. Okay. So, so then what did you mean when you said that we were move or we were moving through where the gas cloud used to be? Yeah, we're moving okay. through the swarm of stars. Oh, okay. Through a system of stars that form together and are still moving together. Mm -hmm. We're going through that. Yeah. So that's one of my questions I want to answer with my career. Can you just have one? Just a star formation event that produced one star hmm. and then nothing. So uh, what does the preliminary data say? Yes. <laughs> yes? <laughs> well, some of these are so spread out that they probably effectively were just on their own. They didn't know they had any brothers or sisters. Mm. Wow. This is so interesting. <laughs> that I had to whisper. <laughs> How did you guys, uh, I mean, you mentioned you were in high school and you were thinking uh, what you, about what you wanted to do and then you decided that if somebody would pay you for science, you would do science uh, or to look at the face. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, is there, did you, I mean, I, I'm sure you guys get asked this question often, but did you have a telescope when you were young? I didn't. Uh, my, honestly, my fourth grade science teacher was fantastic and I just loved science and fourth grade science we had we like grew you know like baby praying mantises like silly stuff but I just loved science class and that grew continued pray, praying mantises. well like from uh like from birth like <laughs> like that we made it no, right no, and we grow we made it praying but I mean the the science That's labs awesome. were you know so, like silly little things but mm. um you know I didn't have a telescope or anything but I just loved science class it continued, and then in high school, you took biochem and physics, and I liked physics the most, so I did that in college, and I always loved space. I just thought it was the coolest, just the coolest science. I mean, we, do, we don't have a lab on a table, and that's just mind-boggling to me how vast space is, so I always wanted mm -hmm. to study it, and then, so in undergrad, I did a physics degree, um, but then I knew in grad school I wanted to study astrophysics, mm -hmm. and just kind of went with it. It just yeah. fell in place. And so what is it like, you know, rather than spending most of your time at a one particular university, what is it like being at an institution like this, mm. being at a museum? What is that experience like? I'll take That's yeah. a good question. <laughs> that, it's awesome. Uh, we're lucky in the Northeast area that there's a lot of universities around in the first place um, because I've met people at conferences that are out in, like, you know, Midwest states, and they are the only university for miles and miles, and the, it's a lot of it's networking. So mm -hmm. I think we're really fortunate to have, we have our university, we have the museum, which doesn't just have CUNY professors, but it has the curators, um, and then there's this uh, collaboration between CUNY, Columbia, and NYU, 
where we all do a conference together every year and um, so it's a lot more networking than you'd get at an institution that didn't have this connection. Yeah, I mean, we are not affiliated directly with the museum. Mm -hmm. We're actually at very well, some of the various CUNY campuses. So the research group actually, the museum was kind enough to make space for all of the astronomers mm -hmm. from the various different schools Got it. to meet here. So yeah, this is kind of the the meeting spot mm -hmm. that makes all of this possible and makes the group possible because I think last time I counted our research group includes people from like five different New York State or New York City institutions. Mm -hmm. Columbia City, Hunter, right. uh, Graduate Center, College of Staten Island. So we're at the spot right now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, but so you said you're not affiliated uh, directly with the museum, but still being here, is there, uh, and you mentioned networking, is there, are there any other, I guess, advantages or perks that you could point out to be, just just to be able to spend time here? Is there anything else? Are you trying to get us to say Neil Tyson? Uh, no, I wasn't. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that question, that's the I question mean, I hey. think I get the most. Yeah. So. You, but <laughs> now, now, now that I think about it, my, it might have been, yeah, it sounded a little bit of a, like a leading <laughs> question, what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've done, I actually was affiliated with the museum for a while, um, was... I got the opportunity to do some teaching, which mm -hmm. works out very well for me because I get experience that people generally don't have when they're trying to apply for uh, jobs higher up in the food chain. I'm a postdoc right now. Um, eventually, I'd like to be faculty somewhere, and most jobs are teaching jobs, so having that experience and actually being able to do real science with high school students has mm -hmm. been kind of exciting and I think very productive and they sure enjoyed it because we played around with things and they discovered new nearby stars probably wow. things like that we've had other people in the department not us obviously um, like looking through supernova finding um, surveys things like that and that's exciting. You you know, you mentioned the high school students. That that was you, right? Not too long ago. Exactly. Right. So that's kind of exciting to now be able to to, to talk to high school students and teach them yeah. about what you're doing. And it's something that you thought about since you were in high school. That's really awesome. Yeah. And and so I mean, students who are either you know graduate students or postdocs at other, I guess, standalone universities. Uh, they still pr probably do have to teach, right? They have to do like the the labs, uh, like physics, uh, general physics labs, or something like that. Yeah, I won't but say I, this is a completely unique experience, right. But it's been a nice one. But I think, it, but in a way, it is because you know those those students don't generally get to have touch with younger students, right? I feel like in a way, it kind of develops your communication and teaching abilities because you, I don't want to say dumb things down, but you have to find a different way to explain things and you know complex things in a simple way right to somebody who doesn't have that initial uh, background yeah so I feel like that would right so that's kind of, that's kind of cool yeah. yeah could you offer any tips or advice for anybody anywhere even a five-year-old <laughs> looking at the stars or maybe even not looking at the stars 
who might be interested in doing what you guys are doing today? What would you tell him or her? I don't know what I would have said before, like 20 minutes before this interview started, <laughs> but I had just, like, right before I came down, heard a story, um, a colleague was upset because um, her class was very stressful and difficult, and it was, classes are emotionally taxing. Uh, I don't want to speak for other fields, but I'll speak for ours, that mm -hmm. they're rough, and it just gets harder. So, um and that I've heard, I've heard before, oh, plenty of times before, what she said about um, considering leaving the field because mm. of how emotionally taxing the classes can be, and a lot of that has to do with the professors. Right. Um, the and lack of teaching experience. These are grad starting like graduate level physics courses you're talking about, right? So just she's an undergraduate. Oh, she's an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. but still. Um, but still, yeah. <laughs> Very intense. Um, uh, yeah. It just gets harder when you get to grad school. So mm -hmm. I think not. I don't want to say toughing it out, but. Reminding yourself why you're here is really important to remember that it's going to be hard and it's going to hurt sometimes and your feelings are going to get hurt and your pride and you're going to question are you smart enough for the field. Um, but remembering that your love of science or space and the stars is why you're here in the first place I think is really important and it definitely got me through the hard crying sessions because <laughs> those happen. Right. Yeah. Those happen and they're okay. Right? Yeah, and they're okay. And yeah, and it's yeah. it's not just right. emotional people, it's not just women. Everyone struggles, no, I think. Yeah. yeah. I nearly transferred to computer science because yeah. I mean, I know we sound, we're sounding like incredible wet blankets. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, they're difficult, but if it's something you like, it's worth doing. Once the hard classes are over, you get paid to just study science and study space, which is really stinking cool. Right, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of cool. Yeah, the prize yeah. at the end is that, to me, it's self-evident that you get to study everything else. You mm -hmm. get to study the entire universe, mm -hmm. and I think that's worth something, and that's why I enjoy my job every day. Yeah, it's a hobby uh, mm -hmm. to some extent but a real career, but sometimes I forget that it's a career yeah. and that I'm not just doing this for fun because I would if I, even if I didn't get paid to do it. So, yeah. I mean, The other thing that I would say is if you don't think you can handle it with math, you should, it, it, you know, if you want to do this but you don't know that you can handle the math, think about it again because I had lots of difficulty with math. I'm sure lots of people have mm -hmm. lots of difficulty with math. There's just this there's this prevalent idea that people have this innate ability to do these things and oh well he's just he's just gifted and he can do whatever he wants <laughs> right but no it takes work mm -hmm. I would and say, for me it was yeah. worth it because I mean the reason that I wanted to do something tangible is that I like to have I like I'm a very visual learner actually and I like to be able to picture what I'm thinking about that's probably come across in a lot of my answers. That mm -hmm. I, I want to be able to see in my head or be able to show what I'm doing. Because, yeah, just a random equation doesn't work for me. I need to know what it's for. Yeah. There's a lot of different learners, and especially, I think, in high school and undergraduate are the prime times when you have to remember why you're here because you'll get... I still get told a lot, and it bothers me every time, that, oh, you're a physicist? You must be so smart. Oh, and it's like, but what if I'm not, and I just worked really hard to be here? And uh -huh. I think about other fields that I, chemistry, I got a C mm -hmm. in every chemistry course I ever took. I think that class is really hard. So it's, 
it's but if I loved chemistry, I would have done it anyway, right. or tried to. And mm -hmm. so it's just, you don't have to be so smart or be gifted in math or be a prodigy. You just, you just need to want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets lost in, yeah. in those years, especially. You can yeah. build an ability to do these things right. if you really want to. And so that's what I did. Yeah. yeah. So that's what Paige yeah. did. And yeah, I struggled here, here in we all are. my classes. Mm -hmm. I was never, in high school, I was, you know, an A-B student. I was in the top 50-ish of the class. But then come undergraduate, and especially graduate level, I was I was low in the class. I was mm -hmm. not that good. I really struggled. But I'm still here. And right. I'm still getting to do science, and I still study mm -hmm. space, and no one ever told me I can't do it. So, I mean, yeah. it's... Well, first of all, that's an awesome attitude to have, and that's, that's great. And I'm glad we, we touched on this topic because... This is actually a, a recurring uh, idea that comes that comes up, and whenever I talk to to graduate students or to professors in different fields, uh, they all say uh, when, when we get get to this topic, they all say, you know, a lot of people have this idea like, oh, so and so is a professor or a PhD in some field or a graduate student in some field, that must be so smart, must be a genius, must be so and so. But, you know, they never, like you were saying, they never take into account that, you know, maybe that person struggled a little bit, you know? And yeah. maybe they actually had to work for it. Right. And And if, yeah, and if you're really interested in something, don't, you know, you shouldn't let the the initial, just, you know, the initial hump, there's a learning curve to throw you off. Yeah. Stick Absolutely. With it, yeah. And the other thing to remember is, you know, I have a PhD in stellar astrophysics. So that means I know a lot about stellar astrophysics, but it d means I don't know much about chemistry, biology, right. even planetary science. Most mm -hmm. of what we were talking about earlier is just because I'm still, you know, part of me is still the curious eight-year-old. Yeah, we read the internet. <laughs> yeah, we read the internet. Yeah. <laughs> even the degree title itself can sound intimidating, but it just means that we studied this stuff longer before they entrusted us to do it for real. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. jobs that, it, like, especially engineering, you, you get a bachelor's and mm -hmm. you're a high-paid engineer. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. It just so happens in our field that you have to get more, way more specific. Like he said, right. your degree has to be way more specified before yeah. you can contribute to get paid field, high money right. to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, I mean, you mentioned that you, you're basically pursuing a hobby. For, yeah. And this is, you know, yeah. basically, you're, so you guys are doing now it. Now I have a telescope at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. But I mean, but I meant to say that you guys are, you're, you're on the, you know, if you're not there already, you're on the verge of getting there, which is, you know, find your favorite hobby and make it your career. I feel yeah. like you guys are yes. there, and that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. it's, there are so many horrible jobs that people get that I realize that I'm incredibly lucky that I've managed to make my passion, my job, and that's really worth a lot. So that's something that I would definitely tell you know, your listeners, the kids, anywhere they are. It's If you want to do it, there are ways to do it. Mm -hmm. You try, you know, even if you're not gifted, even if you don't think you're gifted, if you want to do it, there's there's ways to make it work. There's always mentors who will help who will help you too, right. and programs, mm -hmm. and you know, race doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter. It's a very open field. It's changing, evolving in much better ways, especially than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
and but there is always someone who will help you get where you want to go. It's just about asking. You just have to have the courage to ask someone to help you, and you'll get there. Yeah, that's the biggest step. Yeah, I mean, I I dealt with uh, one of the things that I've done while I've been here is um, I taught, I co-taught a course at a community college in the CUNY system, and there were students in there, obviously from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, but they still cared, and they still loved this stuff, and they were still trying, and some of them have now switched to science majors, mm -hmm. because, you know, Look what you did. I know, I know, what, what am I responsible for, what have I done? Proud Papa Bear moment. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's it's basically the problem right now of people thinking they can't do it is mostly that they don't have the mentor and they don't have the mm -hmm. the ability to to do it. Right, and like you, the gist of what you're saying, you know, it's important to be proactive, right? Yeah. Important to 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 reach out and you know find a mentor. Um, I, just by doing this podcast, I've learned that I point to the mic when I said that. I don't know why, but <laughs> just by doing this, I've learned that you know scientists or people in the field of science generally are just very open people. Like they're they're super open to sharing their ideas and talking about their research. And no, yeah. no, maybe a little bit. Well, you guys are sitting here with me, so <laughs> let's say we may not represent just all <laughs> scientists. So the field is evolving. Present company yes. present is very open yeah. to discuss it. That's yeah. becoming a more popular mentality. It, mm -hmm. um, it is becoming more open. The field sort of demands it. I mean, you you know, I'm a grad student now in this research group, but when I graduate, I'm kind of booted out. I mean, you need <laughs> I need to go get a postdoc, and that's a whole different mentor, advisor, right. research group. Mm -hmm. Could be a totally different field in astrophysics or astronomy. And so you, you have to have an open mind. You kind of sometimes go where the job goes where the mentorship is for you um, and ask for it when you don't have it. Um, yeah. But yeah, It's yeah. like I, I transitioned from working on stars in one particular set of techniques to working on brown dwarfs with a very different set of techniques and it's just expanded my skill set. Mm -hmm. And you go where you go where people want the bits of expertise you have. <laughs> well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really want to thank you guys for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Termination of Current Scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.